Welcome to Van Lathan's The Red Pill, where we give you the brutal reality of truth. Uh, today's guest, a mogul, um, actually in the truest sense of the word, Scooter Braun. Scooter Braun is guy of the careers of Justin Bieber, Ariana Grande, uh, Kanye West, um, uh, just to name a few. Some of the biggest names um, in the entertainment industry uh, have this guy to thank for their rises. Um, now, me and Scooter have a very interesting history together, which we're going to talk a little bit about on the podcast. We're also going to talk a little bit about his history and how he went from being a party promoter in Atlanta to perhaps the biggest manager uh, in all of music. We're going to talk about what Jason Weaver, my guy, had to do uh, with Scooter Braun becoming who he is. And also just how he sees the world, man. It's interesting to see what a guy who uh, basically guides other careers thinks about the way that social media, uh, the way that, you know, sort of fame and celebrity is affecting um, how we view our society. Uh, Is he still going to run for governor? How did he feel when Justin Bieber, someone who he is very connected to, not just professionally, but personally, was wilding out? All of these things Scooter and I are going to talk about. But before we get to that, I just want to say a couple of words. Um, Scooter Braun, one of his biggest uh, clients is Ariana Grande. Ariana Grande, of course, uh, was connected to Mac Miller. for uh, for a long time they dated and we recently lost mac miller last week uh, mac miller passed away it's very important that people out there know that it, no one in the industry had a bad word to say about mac miller and that's uh you typically get that response when someone first passes but in this case everyone who was alerted to this news uh reacted the same way because the kid was such a genuine uh, gentleman, such a nice guy, uh, such an unbelievably um, sort of light-seeking soul. And, you know, everyone who was in his aura in any way uh, is, is very sad that this happened. Rest in peace, Mac Miller. The culture misses you. I know your family and friends miss you. Uh, let's pop some pills and get into Scooter Brown right now. Got you. By the way, there are so many people I did not realize that you managed when I was doing prep. Like who? Like the Zach Brown band, mm-hmm. the Zach Brown. You managed the Zach Brown band, yeah. So like, are we on? Yeah, we're 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 on right now. Oh, we started. Okay. Yeah, we've started. We've started. Like <laughs> the Zach Brown band will be the first thing that that we will discuss. Is there any difference in the way you manage, say, uh, I don't know, a, a Bieber and a Zach Brown band? Like, is there is there is there like is, is there? By the way, before we do this, white people clap for Scooter Brown. Yeah. Woo! I gotta tell y'all something real quick. Real quick, I'm gonna tell you how I had my first conversation with Scooter Braun. This is very important. It's a very important story for me. I was on TMZ Live completely railing against the idea that this man, Scooter, should run for governor. Now, if you guys know entertainment, of course, you know who Scooter Braun is. Most, I'd say, most connected to Justin Bieber. Yeah. But a wide array of people that you manage. One Ariana, of them, yeah. 
Ariana Grande, bunch of people we talked about. Some people I didn't know that you managed, and I'm and I'm and I'm I'm saying there's a story out that you have your eye on the governor's mansion, and I am on. Oh well, that was the story. There were people that wanted me to do it. There were people that wanted you to do it. Yes, and I am on. TMZ Live going, yo, this is a terrible fucking idea. This is ridiculous. This is how we got. And all of a sudden, there's on the other end of a phone, Harvey goes, here, this is a guy who wants to talk to you. And it's you. And we had like a 30 or 45 minute conversation where you kind of uh, played out why you felt the way you felt about politics and about society in general. Before we get into anything else. The funny thing was, I didn't even want to run for governor. Right. But I was confused on why you would think it was so inappropriate mm -hmm. without even knowing anything about me right so i decided to get on the phone call you up because i knew i could mm -hmm. and say look before you pass judgment now that i've heard you pass judgment let's have a conversation about it and by the end of it we were friends yeah so and then you told me to run then i said then i said <laughs> after listen listen by the way by the way people are laughing at that that never happens you no one ever changes van's mind i always come in there but I guess, why did you think it was so important to make that call? Um, I think the honest truth was at the time I, I was working through my head whether I was interested in something like that, mm -hmm. whether it be running at that point or just politics in general. And for me to see you so adamant against it, I wanted to understand um, if I had a conversation with you which is something I'd have to do on a mass scale. Right. If I ever decided to point my life in that direction, I wanted to see how that would go. Um, I wanted to, you know, I think the same way I've marketed in music, I kind of look at everything in my life as a conversation with an individual is, is as important, if not more important than with the masses. Mm -hmm. um, and you should treat the masses as if you're having an intimate conversation with one individual. So the opportunity to have that conversation with you and address all the things that we addressed um, was an exercise for me to see, you know, with you starting with that mindset, could I show you who I really am and would that make a difference? All right. Um, and I had respect for you and uh, how I'd seen you carry yourself at different points within the job of TMZ. All right. Um, so once we had the conversation, I think we both found out a lot more about each other. Um, and it's the exercise I feel like right now we're missing in politics in general. Like people don't take the time to have a conversation with someone out of a place of respect when someone differs with their opinion. Right. And I want to pride myself. I, I decided not to go into politics. Right. But I still pride myself in being one of those people that will always do that. Why did you decide if it's such a necessary conversation and you you do it so naturally, why what was the decision not to go into politics about? Um, a couple of reasons. One, uh <clears throat> I have unfinished business mm -hmm. within my business life. Um, two, I have young children, and I feel like at this point in my life, it's unfair to do to them, you know, this young. I have a three and a half year old, a one and a half year old, and a, a daughter on the way. Oh, wow. Um, thank you. So I just felt like right now I got to focus on my family and focus on my business. And then I also had this like weird thing in my head of like going into politics would be an egotistical move because you're promoting yourself. And the funny thing was, and the funny thing was, my friend pointed out to me that once I go into politics, I don't make money anymore, really. Right. And that's I'd, true. And I'd actually be going against myself and the fact that I have a very 
good situation right now in my company where I make really good money and I'd be giving all that up. Hmm. Um, which the funny part, that was the one thing that didn't hold me back. I had, I'd have no problem. I made more than I ever thought I'd gonna, I was going to make. Right. And I'm very satisfied financially with where my life has ended up at 37. Yeah. So, you know, if I was going to politics, so what I'd want to do is I made a bunch of investments in some companies years ago mm-hmm. and they're heading towards IPO, they're heading towards sale. I'd want to see all those things get there. Then I'd want to go completely liquid to, so people knew that I couldn't be bought. Right. But I also didn't have ties to companies. I feel like that's why a lot of people voted for Trump. Because there were people who felt like he can't be bought. I want someone who can't be bought. I heard somebody that I really expect say that exact phrase. And what they didn't realize is he stayed involved in all these different companies. Mm-hmm. You know, So there's a lot of conflict still within his life. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had no intention of changing that. And I think what people were looking for, he just isn't that guy. Right. Um, and if I was to go into politics, I'd want to represent that, that I can't be bought, but I also have no more ties. Mm-hmm. Um, so I could be coming from an object- objective place. And it just wasn't, it wasn't the time. I was 37 years old and I'm still looking constantly to find those leaders that I can get behind. Right. 90, 90% of the time I'm disappointed. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's why I still think about it from time to time. But right now I got to focus on what's in front of me. You... My main problem that I had with um, your, I guess, the idea of you being governor was the sort of (laughs) intertwining of celebrity and politics. And the reason why I've soured on that uh, is because of how celebrity elevated Donald Trump to the position that he's in right now. And I feel like he's a little bit in over his head um, as uh, the leader of the free fucking world. Um, Now, you deal in celebrity. That is your job part of my job it's yeah. part of your job um how do you feel like celebrity right now is affecting the political and social landscape that we live in because it seems like to me a lot of the people even some of the people that you manage have an inordinate amount of influence over our daily lives like they've never had before to to influence what we read what we eat what we wear all of this stuff. Probably why we ended up in the position where he's president. Right. Um, look, the funniest thing for me is when we first had that conversation, what soured you to me when I wasn't even trying to run mm-hmm. <laughs> was was actually Donald Trump. I was actually, when I got on the phone with you, I was fighting an uphill battle against someone who I firmly didn't believe I was anything like. And the main reason why I would even think about it was because of how disappointed I was in the result of him being the president right. um, and his behavior. Um, and it's not even the policy that upsets me the most. It's the fact that I can't leave my child in front of the TV and worry when the president of the United States is talking that I might not have a, might not be able to walk away without having to have a moral conversation when I come mm. back. Um, and I feel like the president is supposed to be this, in some ways, a figurehead of what we think the best of us is. Um, and I don't want to have to come back to a television and explain to my son he can't disrespect a woman or disrespect um you know someone of mexican descent or muslim uh you know of the muslim religion like that's unacceptable All right um so that's frustrating as far as celebrity goes you know my firm belief on celebrity is very simple if someone's going to educate themselves uh and use their platinum platform for good i think that's a beautiful thing but if you're not going to educate yourself and you're going to listen to the first opinion that comes your way i'd rather you say nothing hmm. and because of social media 
the loudspeaker is always on it. But before there were gatekeepers. You know, you had to get on that TV show to speak. You had to get on that you radio. You had station. to have fucking done something. And now, well, you even if you did something, you still needed to go through the gatekeepers to get to your fan base. Sure, yeah. And now <clears throat> you're you're a mood away. You know, I'm angry. I might tweet. Right. I'm angry. I might Instagram. Right. You know, and and that's a very very dangerous thing, which we're going to see how it develops throughout unfortunately my son's life mm -hmm. my daughter's life you know and and see where that takes off but i also believe that through all that you know mis all the mistakes that are going to come with that you know when you break a bone it heals stronger you know with the children's march i got to see these high school kids from parkland and chicago and la all come together and they are so incredibly educated and they're so incredibly passionate about policy and about changing the world in a way that my generation just flat out wasn't Mm -hmm. um, and I think that we're going to see some incredible leaders come out of really our mistakes. Are you worried that when someone, when kids like that or anybody who becomes an activist, that when their platform and their reach starts to uh, multiply, elevate, however you want to say it, that sometimes celebrity and having a bunch of people around you creeps into... yeah. That it has, unfortunately, I've seen it happen with way too many human beings. Where it celebrity, happens all the time. It happens all the time. Unf but I also believe celebrity, fame, and fortune, we have this misconception that it changes you. I don't think it does. Hmm. I think it elevates your true character. Um, Scooter, that's a hell of a thing to say, considering some of the people that you know and that you've worked with. 100%. It brings out the best of your character and the worst of your character. It elevates it. Mm. You know, and, you know, it, it's how strong is your foundation before that celebrity? Mm. You know, are you able to handle it? I, I told my mother before this happened to me, I, I was promoting parties, and I said, Mom, I'm never going to be the douchebag. I held the rope for them. <laughs> you know, and yeah. and I've stuck to that. You right. know, um, but they gave me some, a really strong foundation, so I was able to handle what came. And I'm like an e-league celebrity mm -hmm. you know i'm i'm a celebrity by association um you're pretty fucking famous now though but through association to my work yeah. led to that because right. of the people i work with um and you know i i honestly believe that you know when i say the best and the worst in your true character if your character was going to go through those flaws as an adolescent those flaws are going to be highlighted on a whole different level. Word. And then if you get through them, like Justin has, mm -hmm. and come out the other side as a really strong, confident young man, that's what would have happened probably, but it's elevated Maybe. now by and celebrity. And also, we can all see it. And also, something that people don't understand is, when I wanted to fuck up when I was 14 or 15, I had to fuck up like in my neighborhood. Like I couldn't fuck up like in South America. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I like I couldn't I like I couldn't fuck I had to fuck up with my dad's truck, not with like a Lamborghini. And by the way, when you and I fucked up, we don't even remember until like a friend or our pops like points Somebody it out. Somebody has to tell me years to later. To remind you, it's not like document <laughs> right. not documented for the whole world. <laughs> right. Um Do you feel like during the time that he was going through what he was going through that people were unfair to him? No. I don't. Hmm. And and he might feel a certain way. I mean, <clears throat> I don't. Because, you know, my pops used to say to me when I was younger, he used to hold me to really high standards. and used to drive me crazy because he treated me differently than the other kids in our neighborhood. Like, they were allowed to go around, fuck up, and we weren't allowed to do any of that. Right. And he always said, I think you're extraordinary, so I hold you to extraordinary standards. Word. 
And I think Justin is an extraordinary young man who's been given an extraordinary life. And because of that, he cannot complain that he's held to extraordinary standards. And he used to complain, he used to fight it, and, used to, and that's kind of what got him into a dark place. Mm-hmm. But when he accepted his responsibility and took a lot, hard look at himself and not what everyone else was doing, mm-hmm. that's when he owned it and he got healthy and he got better and he made the choice to change. You could totally see it on him now. Like he seems like a completely different person. Was there ever a time that you looked at him and be like, yo, we lost this kid? There was a time where I would go to sleep almost every night when he had the money to fly away from me. <laughs> and I was worried every night that I was going to lose him. Mm-hmm. And, and that was the time where I was telling him he's not allowed to work. And he used to yell and scream at me and like he wanted to put music out. He wanted to tour. But I thought if he did that, he would die. Right. So I just refused. Like we weren't making any money. It wasn't like I was trying to take advantage. Like I didn't want him to work because I wanted him to get healthy. So um, when you say lose him, you thought. I thought he was going to die. I thought he was going to go to sleep one night and have so much crap in his system that he would not wake up the next morning. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to monitor him from a distance. I would fly after him at times, like all kinds of different stuff. And there's a lot of times where people give me credit for him changing um, or people on my team. And I don't think any of us deserve the credit. I think that he made a conscious choice for himself to change. I think for a year and a half, I failed miserably trying to help him because for a year and a half, he didn't change. And I made every effort you can imagine. I went to Al-Anon meetings. I'd fly chasing him. I'd do this. I'd manipulate other people to be here to try and move this here. Mm-hmm. All this, none of it worked. It wasn't until one day he woke up and said, hey, I need to talk to you. I don't want to be this person anymore. You know, and he made the decision to change and actually put that into action. And the result is who he's become today. And that is a result of his own decision. No one else's. Wow. So there has also been a spiritual awakening that's going on with Justin. Mm-hmm. How much of that do you think, uh, you know, plays a part into kind of who he is now? Um, look, I think everyone kind of has to go on their own spiritual journey. Mm-hmm. I mean, my own personal religious beliefs is that we're all on a path to enlightenment, but no path is the same. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that as human beings, we are not built to be worshipped. You know, I don't want to get too, too deep here, but I think that's a higher power. as deep as you need to. You know, Austin is enthralled over here. Look at Austin. Austin's about to fucking cry. <laughs> like, I, I just think, I just think mm-hmm. like, that's mm-hmm. for a higher power. Sure. And I think as human beings, we're not made to be worshipped. And I think when we start to get worshipped and we start to accept that worship, that's why you see so many famous people lose themselves. Mm-hmm. Because when people are chanting their name night after night, and they start to believe it's really them, whether that be a politician or whether that be a musician, Mm -hmm. they lose themselves in that moment and think it's really them. And that's when our system breaks. That's what the funny thing for me is when you become a superstar, it's actually easy to maintain the superstar. It's the hard part is getting there. But so many superstars destroy themselves and it's because they're accepting the worship in my opinion. And I think when you understand that even with all that praise, you're actually supposed to serve, you're supposed to pass that energy on, Mm That's the only way you survive. And I think that's what's changed for Justin. He now understands he's there to serve. Mm. He's there to help. What Ariana did in Manchester, you know, she took that. That, she, that was something different. But uh, I'm saying, but she served. Like, that, she, she, she took she that served, pain and that she served. that was not just serving. That was fucking brave. Mm-hmm, I agree. To go back, if you guys know what I'm talking about, obviously you guys know the Manchester incident that happened during Ariana Grande concert. And how long was it after that that she went back on that stage and performed again? Uh, Two weeks to the day. That's 
Give it up right now. Why y'all looking at me? Clap. Good girl gets up there like right away. What goes into that? Are you not in that situation? I know that she's serving and she's living on her prayer. Are you not worried? Are you not concerned? Is that something that she was, she felt like she had to do? Um. So what happened was when the attack happened, I, it was in Manchester. Our show was two days later at the O2 in London. Mm-hmm. So I actually was in LA getting on a plane to meet her in London. I wasn't at the Manchester show. Right. And I started getting phone calls. And at first I thought it was a prank. I'm like, someone said bomb. People trampled each other running out. There was no bomb. Because that's what people started feeding back. And as the hours kept going by, it just kept getting worse and worse. And now it was a bomb. you know. And there are people who are dead. And there are children who are dead. And like, mm-hmm. you just couldn't make it up. Um, and then you had a decision to make of do you keep her there and fly to her? Or do you bring her back here? And we got a lot of criticism at first from people saying she left. But that was because the Greater Manchester Police and the British uh, London Police told us, look, there's nothing she can do here right now. We knew we weren't doing the next show. And it's probably better she leaves while we try and figure this out. So we flew her to her grandma's house in Boca and I flew there and met her when she landed. Um, And... I'm a Holocaust survivor's grandchild. Like both my grandparents wow. were in the camps. So I've been hearing about this kind of evil my whole life. My family's very small because everyone was murdered in my family by this kind of evil. Mm. And I used to have fantasies of like fighting back. Right. So, getting your shit and going yeah. and mowing down a bunch of Nazis. 100%. And when this happened, that anger came to the surface. And I was like, oh, you chose the wrong show. Right. Like, we're going to show you. And the ask I put on her was unfair. I'm flying to meet her at grandma's house in Boca, and I'm walking in like, we need to do a show now. Right now. We need like, to go right yeah, back. We need to yeah. go back and show them that you can't break us down. And that's how we answered. And she looked at me like, I'm never going to be able to sing these songs again. I'm never going to be able to wear these costumes. I can't go on that stage. Are you insane? Mm-hmm. Hysterically crying. And I realized how incredibly unfair the ask was. So I stopped, and I worked it out with her insurance company. They were going to pay her full premium the entire tour. She's allowed to cancel. They're a British company. Right. They're like, <clears throat> what she just went through, no one's ever gone through before. A hundred percent. We're giving the fans, like, she she's done. We're going to pay her. And actually, if you understand how touring works, that means she would have made more money than actually doing the tour. Because, Why? Because she has no overhead now. Oh, because she doesn't pay nobody. Hasn't have to pay anybody. No mm-hmm. dancers have to get, like, nothing. It's free money for a whole tour. Yeah. Um, and two days I spent there. Flew back home, and when I landed, I had like 14 texts from Ariana saying, please call me. I've been thinking about this. Please call me. Please call me. And I called her up, and she goes, you know, I've been thinking about it. And I know I said I can't do these shows anymore, but I thought about what you said, and if I don't do this, these people died in vain, and I am not who I say I am. Mm. So I want to go back out on the road tomorrow. And I said, well, before you do that, I looked at everything, and the last two days we've talked to the doctors, the specialists, like you have PTSD, your fans have PTSD, your dancers have PTSD. We need to spend the next two weeks really, really taking our time and making sure that you're strong enough. Because right now you're fueled up, but when you hit that stage, if you're not prepared, you might break down. Hmm. So I looked at it and I said, the next, the next show in two weeks, let's cancel the next two weeks. But there's a show in two weeks in Paris. Right. And that's where the last terrorist attack was with the Eagles death metal. Mm-hmm. So let's start there. But I have one more idea. I think before we do that, we should do a show in Manchester Mm. and go back there. And she, without even blinking an eye, goes, I'm in. Wow. And 
our rule was that we would put together the whole show and she wouldn't even know who's involved until the night before because she was just going to work with the therapist to make sure that her mindset was strong enough to handle what was coming. Mm. And I remember even hours before she was struggling and right before she walked on stage, she just was like, okay, turned it on. And she walked out there with the bravery and the courage that like, she's one of my heroes forever because of that night. Yeah. She killed it, man. She killed it. I want to, I want to, but also the city of Manchester. I mean, just so you know, this is a wild story. The London attack was the night before (laughs) our show. So we're preparing for two weeks for this. And all of a sudden there's another terrorist attack in London while we're preparing Manchester and we're rehearsing in London on the London bridge. So right before the second show, right before the show we did to come back two weeks later, the night before there's another terrorist attack in London. And the next day they asked me to write this whole thing about why we're doing the show, why it will continue. And I put out this statement and an hour later, the greater Manchester police referred to my statement to show the show's going on, but said, please beware. The terror alert is at high and there is, quote, likely going to be another attack. That is what they literally likely, likely, quote, likely going to be another attack. Yeah. And I'm thinking I'm showing this live on the BBC, live on Twitter, live on Facebook, live on YouTube. The whole world's watching. No one is going to come. I have children. Mm -hmm. We would stay in our home and watch the whole concert for the comfort of our couch because the government just told us likely going to be an attack. I thought no one was coming. And at five o'clock when we started, 60,000 people were in that stadium. Mm. packed to show the world that they would not be messed with. And that's why I say, like, Ariana and the city of Manchester and all those artists that show up, those were the heroes for me. Right. And those kids in the hospital that we met, I mean, it was it was one of the most important things I'll ever do in my life. Yeah, it was incredible, man. Where'd you come from, man? You know what, I like, because you, you, I know some manager types. To be honest with you, I never really much liked them. <laughs> like, like, you know what I mean? I mean, I'm, I'm seriously. I know a bunch of different manager types. You got to spend more time with me. You won't like me either. Well, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe. But I never really much liked them. But where'd you come from? I also heard before you. I heard that Jason Weaver, a guy who doesn't get a lot of respect out here in these streets as much as he should. Shout out to Jason Weaver, a legend. Simba and the Lion King, the voice of Jason Weaver. I heard he had a lot to do with kind of you, like 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 you kind of getting to where you are, man. Let's 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 show let's, love to Jason. Let's show love to Jason Weaver right now, man. You know what, white people, y'all clap for Jason Weaver right now. You know what I'm saying? The best part of what he just said is behind the camera there are three white people and one one black man, and every <laughs> single time he says white people clap, three white guys clap, and the one black man literally does not clap. He just sits there staring at us like he didn't save me. That's not just any black man though. Boo, get on the mic. You know, Mike, like this guy is this is a this is a this is a um this is an artist. Remember Philly's Most Wanted? Remember that? Joke? Yeah, hey. one of Philly's Most Wanted right oh, yeah. there. Man. There you go. So you don't need to clap. Uh, no, I do need to clap. Though. <laughs> no, no, he didn't, he didn't ask you. Just make a like, good point. <laughs> yeah, he's now an artist. We this only wants to come here and be a part of the podcast. Give it up, clap. White people clap. Yes, sir. <laughs> Again, same thing happened. Same thing happened. Um, uh, Jason so, Weaver. Jason Weaver, just take us through the beginning of how Scooter Braun became Scooter Braun and what the hell Jason Weaver had to do with it. Um. I went to play D3 basketball in Atlanta, Georgia. Get the fuck out of here. Oh, you play basketball? You play <laughs> That's basketball? funny. You see what Scooter right, just did? You're one of the, you're one of the guys <laughs> who plays at the gym. You see what Scooter just did? So talks about, Y'all see what Scooter talks, that was cute, talk, man. Talks that about was his, cute, gl- his, glory, his glory game from that seventh grade. That was cute. Scooter just came in. Scooter's, yes, that's adorable. Scooter, get that yeah, deal on some yeah. basketball shit. Yeah. You play D3 basketball, okay. I know. I, I mean, for the little bit I was in college. Um, but yeah, I, look, I played AU basketball. Played. I, I was going to 
sit the bench on some D1 program and gotcha. said no. Went to D3, realized no one even cared there. So um, <laughs> my best friend was Jason Williams, who's playing at Duke and killing it. So it was, Shout out to Jay Will. That's yes, my guy. Does. Yeah. And, uh, and I... I, I basically walked by this club called Chaos in Atlanta. We used to be in Buckhead when Buckhead was the spot. Mm -hmm. And I asked this guy if I could throw a party at his club, um, would he give me any money? Because mm -hmm. I saw he was empty. And he said, well, how many people can you bring? And I said, how many people can you hold? He said, 800. I said, sure, 800. I'd never done it before. And he was looking at me like, you're crazy. You're not going to be 800 people. Mm -hmm. And I went out and made up a name for a company called Kryptonite Entertainment because I like Superman. Yeah. And I uh, I made Kinko's flyers, hmm. and I got every cute freshman girl I know to pass out my flyers. And the next week, I had 800 people there. And the guy like was blown away, gave me some money. And at the party, Jason Weaver walked in, and he was watching a majority white crowd listening to hip-hop. Mm. And that didn't exist in Atlanta at the time. Right. If and you guys don't know Jason Weaver, I got to say this. Jason Weaver... Played young Michael Jackson. Played young Michael Jackson. In the VH1 uh, movie. In the VH1 movie, The Jacksons. One Call Away, this chingy featuring Jason Weaver. He was the voice, the singing voice of Simba in The Lion King. He the was young on, Simba. Young, young Simba. Simba. He was on a show called uh, Thea. Thea. He's done a lot of work. Drumline. Jason Weaver's a big deal. And his cousin, his first cousin is Tricky Stewart, the producer. You who lying. I, who, the tr producer who made Baby with me. I never even knew that that was a thing. That's how I met Tricky. Jason introduced me. Oh, okay, finish the story. This is the shit I like, by the way. Um, <laughs> so Jason came and he goes, do you want to see how the other half lives? Because he introduced himself to me and I was like. The other half and is I said, I didn't say that. But uh, <laughs> but he, he said, I said, what do you mean? He goes, said black people. And, right. I, and to me, I, that was something, I was very used to being the minority like I was because you have a bunch of black friends well I played on an AU basketball team where so there was that two, means two, you had a bunch of black friends yeah but on my team we were like three white kids and everyone else was black so right. and you travel every weekend together and then I have two adopted brothers who are black um, really yeah like your parents adopted some some black people yeah and you know the best thing we do um, my favorite thing to do is throw alley-oops to them no no when, <laughs> that too but um, when me and my brothers are together people say oh my god that's amazing that you guys adopted these two kids and we like to stop them and say no 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 I was adopted you were their adopted family. Right, right and then you see the, right. like the weird face that people make when they don't want to show their racism that they inherently right. didn't realize they have yeah and they're like oh yeah because they want to say like what happened at that agency yeah why <laughs> but uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, so I was like, yeah, sure. And he took me to a guy named Alex Gidewan's party at Velvet Room on Tuesday night. You should be the spot in Atlanta back in the day. Mm -hmm. And Alex was so fascinated to see a white kid at his party. Like, he just used to let me in free every week. Mm -hmm. And Alex had a little stutter. And he's still like the king of parties in that scene in Atlanta. And, he, and now he owns nightclubs. He started off as a parking lot attendant. Word. Ethiopian immigrant it was a parking lot attendant America, and now baby. it's became one of the biggest club owners in the country mm -hmm. and Alex used to say whoa, 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 let the white boy in nah. and, and um, I used to throw my parties on Thursdays and then go spend all my money on Tuesdays impressing people make him think I made it so they would come to my party on Thursdays mm. and um, and Jason really put me on and meeting Alex is how I learned how to promote Word. what was the first artist that you got um, so I had a bunch of artists before like I really broke one. Mm -hmm. um, I had these guys. I had this artist named Cato. I had an artist, uh, the Bama Boys. And for a bunch of re different reasons, it didn't work out. And then this guy, Jerry Smokin' B, used to be the program director at Hot 97 in Atlanta back in the day. Um, he was friendly with me, and he said, man, if you put all this effort into an artist that you believe in that no one else believes in, 
I think you're going to break an artist. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, I think you're trying to sign what everyone else wants you to sign and not what you want to sign. And I was working at SoSo Def at the same time. I was the VP. Oh, word. I was 20-year-old VP at SoSo Def. So, like, Anthony Hamilton was my project. Mm -hmm. um, we did Jaquan. Uh, uh, these 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 records is bring me Anthony Hamilton man Bone Crusher coming where I'm from oh Austin yeah. for five thousand black points right now <laughs> name Bone Crusher's big hit damn anybody in the room right now this is telling you why I'm working with over here name the big hit by Bone Crusher man it was record was hey, everywhere I have a question for you when when you turn off the lights and it's dark are you fill in the thing do you ever get when you're alone in the if dark. If Freddy Krueger came up to you, would you be scared? Yeah. Scared. And then and the movie with Justin Bieber was called what? Uh, fuck. Never say never. Yeah. Okay, take the first word of that. Never say scared. There you go. Oh, it's never scared. Y'all come. Y'all don't know that fucking Bone Crusher, man. I got a bunch of nerds in this bitch. <laughs> um, that's crazy. That's 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 embarrassing, by the way, for the people that's gonna watch the podcast, watch, listen to this. Y'all never heard Bone Crusher? That's that's an embarrassing. I'll tell you. Who am I? You know what I'm saying? They heard it. I told these motherfuckers. I ain't never. I can't do it. We're going to pause for a second, pay some bills. People always ask me for advice. I watch a lot of college football. I know how the ball is going to bounce. That's my thing. Usually, when they ask me for advice, it's what uh, team to bet on this week. Uh, the truth is, though, I don't always know who's going to win. I got to be real. Sometimes I'm just going with my gut. But if you think you know, you got to check out my bookie. You got to trust me. These guys are your best bet this season. They've been in business for years, have unbelievably great reviews online, and their mobile site is super easy to use. Not to mention they have in-game live betting and the most rewarding player perks in the entire business. Plus, for you fantasy guys out there, you can even bet the over-under on how many points a fantasy player is going to score each game. That's some hardcore betting right there. So lay down some cash and win big today. You win, they pay. Join now, and my bookie will match your deposit dollar for dollar. Use the promo code PILL when creating your account to claim up to $1,000 in free pay. That's M-Y-B-O-O-K-I-E. And don't forget to use the promo code PILL when creating your account to claim the bonus. You play, you win, you get paid. Um, so you were working there where you had all of Work, those people. I worked in that, then I had artists on the side, the Jerry Smokey B gave me the advice, mm -hmm. and then I said, okay, cool, I'm gonna find something that I understand. And I was throwing all these college parties, so I found this kid on MySpace that didn't even have a mixtape, and uh, but he, he could rap. Hmm. And he was wearing flip-flops when I met him. Um, I flew him down to meet me. He was wearing flip flops, and I was like, "Okay, this is this is a kid who like comes from this world of college kids that I know right. who can really rap." And that's when I signed Asher Roth. Ah, I love college. And then, I love college, and that's where it came from for me. Understanding that world, him understanding that world, and then four months after that, I found a kid on YouTube singing, and I told uh, Ludacris's manager Shaka Zulu that I had this idea Shaka. for finding an artist who reminded us of what Michael used to do, which was have an angelic voice and sing love songs because it's adults. Mm -hmm. We're so jaded about love, but when we hear a young voice sing them, it kind of brings us back to when we believed in it. Mm -hmm. And that was Bieber. So, and then after that, we out of here, baby. Well, for, I just really focused on that for a long time and then decided at one point, okay, I'm going to sign different acts. And then I signed, like, I decided to sign acts that I could break within a year. Mm -hmm. So, signed Carly Rae Jepsen and we did Call Me Maybe and mm -hmm. all that, all her albums since. And I did um, the, the Wanted, Glad You Came. I did Gangnam Style. You you know, 
with Cy and then signed a, a artist I saw in a coffee shop who I think is an incredible voice, Tori Kelly. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, yep. And Fantastic then, voice. Yep. And then uh, ended up signing Ariana, just a lot of different artists over the years and, and um, expanding into film and TV and just kind of every day waking up and saying, okay, what do I want to try now? And got lucky, invested in some tech companies and making that money life's been good that's good so first of all before we move on what happened to asher roth um asher was the first artist where i understood you can only push someone as far as they want to be pushed Mm -hmm. asher's gonna be my brother for the rest of my life but after he was young i love college happened there was a lot of hype people call him next eminem all these different things that was the thing yeah and he didn't want it he was like i don't i just want to rap and go to my colleges and and do this whole thing and i don't want to be famous i don't want to be bothered in the street and, and justin started to explode at the same time mm-hmm. and he started seeing what's happened to him what's happened to justin he's like i don't want this he's like when you found me i wasn't looking for it i was in school to be a school teacher that's literally what he was in school for mm. and to this day he'll still do his shows he'll make his money um playing the i love college and some other you know some of the other stuff in the mixtapes but for the most part, he likes helping people. So he's, you know, I'm sure he's going to continue educating. He's helping he move back to Philly. But one day he called me up and he's like, listen, man, you know, I don't want this the way you wanted it for me. The same way. I'm grateful. I've been able to travel the world and see things and do things. But I don't want the same thing. So I don't need you to manage me anymore because I know for the rest of my life, if I call you and I need anything, you're going to do it anyway. So I pay you. Right. Got you. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. And, Is that and, the first artist you ever worked with that didn't want to be famous, that didn't want any of those things? Because that, isn't that the fucking point? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, and it was my first artist. I mean, he, he wanted to make music. <laughs> he just didn't want, and I respected that. And I've mm-hmm. met artists like that since, and I've chosen what I want to work with and what I don't. So you said something earlier about what happens when people start to become worshipped, and I thought of a, a lyric popped in my head when you were saying that from a from a really really talented guy. And the lyric is, "It's hard to be humble when you're stunting on a jumbotron." That lyric is from a guy named Kanye West, mm-hmm. a guy who you're already smiling, a guy who there is sort of a a connection because I met you before that happened. Okay. You guys did just listening to the Red Pill podcast. One day Kanye West came into the TMZ newsroom and him and I had what's been known as an exchange. Really? I didn't, I didn't yeah, know about never that. Heard, I didn't no. hear about that. But first, I actually, first time for everything. It's funny. It's funny. I I met you, I met you some we we had taught some months before that. Mm-hmm. When you saw that or got word that that happened, first thing that went through your mind was what? Kanye, you were working Ka- with Kanye at that point. No, I wasn't. You weren't working with that Kanye was actually the funniest thing. Um, Kanye and I had been working together for about two over two years, mm-hmm. and uh, two weeks before that happened, he had put up a tweet saying that I cannot be managed. I don't have a manager, and then that. he explained that he had offered me and his lawyer uh, that we had to leave our businesses and be full time with him, mm-hmm. and we had both declined. So he had said we can no longer work with him. Mm-hmm. So when that happened, I was not working with Kanye. Mm. and I ended up finding out about it after the fact and then speaking with him after the fact because, as he's explained since, he was in a state, he, he, he has, you know, he's talked about being bipolar, sure. and he was in a state, and he said certain things, and he's explained since. Mm-hmm. Um, sure but obviously when I'm watching that, I'm like, God, if, if I was around, like, would that have happened? Could Do you I have think helped? it would have happened had you been working with him? I don't know. And I, and I, I don't, yeah. I don't know. And I, I don't want to say all I know is that when people ask me about him, 
I get as frustrated as anybody. Mm-hmm. He gets frustrated with me. Like that's part of having a relationship with someone. But who who would I be if I gave up on him because everyone else did? Hmm. You know, if I felt like he really believed certain things or if he was a malicious person, I would not be involved with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe he comes from a good place. I feel like his heart is good. I feel like he actually wants the best for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but he doesn't always express that the way you and I would. All right. Um, and I feel like if I'm his friend, I'm going to try and be there for him and help him as best I can. Mm-hmm. Now, does that mean I agree with everything he does? Hell no. Um, but I have a lot of friends that I don't agree with everything they do. And I don't have friends who I feel like come from a malicious place. Mm -hmm. I cut them off. Mm. Um, and I think you and Kanye have had your own exchanges since. Yeah, I was about to tell you. Yeah. Um, I was about to mention that. Yeah. I, I sent Kanye and you know, haven't really discussed this, but I sent Kanye an email last week or a couple of weeks ago. And, um, you know, it's funny is after I saw the apology that he had uh, that he made on the Chicago radio station, um, I'd had his email for a long time because I ca- I hit you months ago, and what I didn't like was the narrative that I in some kind of way came up or took a stepping stone in my career off making another black man look bad because that's not the intent. The intent wasn't to uh, son you. You came from a place of of caring, right? And so I, I hit you up a, little, a while ago. And I um and I asked you, do do you think it would be okay for me to send him an email and just explain to him what happened and stuff like that? And we talked about it, but I thought it was best not to do it then. But I I did do it, and it's funny what you just said. In his apology, what I saw was that no matter what he said and how fucked up it was to me and how it came off, no, in his in the the initial thing that he said, no matter how fucked up it was, the apology was sincere, and you could see, you could see that it was sincere that he. That it hurt him to know that he had hurt people. And so if it hurts you to know that you've hurt people, that at least tells me that you're a good person. At least. And I wrote this to him. This at least tells me you're a good person. So if we're starting from there, that you're a good dude, how do you deal with good people that you disagree with? How do you deal with good people that you don't understand? And I wrote a long email explaining to him, not capitulating at all. And then he wrote one almost right back. And in his, he told me where he thought that I was wrong. Where he thought that I had done things that weren't, um, that didn't have his best interest at heart and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, he's doing a lot of things that are benefiting people in Chicago, that are benefiting people all over the place. And we were able to come to some sort of understanding. Um, I still don't really have an explanation for what happened in the newsroom. I, just, I, I don't think anyone does. You know what I, I mean? I think, I think you also you have to realize like how he acted on like a Kimmel versus how he acted in here right. are two different things because that's the state of what he's dealing with with the, with a bipolar disorder mm-hmm. and you know he that's something he has to deal with every single day mm-hmm. and he, he i think what he did on kimball by explaining that and talking about that probably helped a lot of people out there who are dealing with it also who don't know how to express themselves mm-hmm. um but i'm just not interested in you know it's the same thing i can't tell you when when justin went through his time how many people in powerful positions who are involved with his business Mm-hmm. said you have enough of other artists and everything else it's been a great run with that kid but let it go just get rid of Justin just B. get rid of him he's poisoned nobody fucks with him <clears throat> like let it go and mine was like I didn't, I'm not built that way right. you know I don't, I don't believe you give up on someone when, when shit gets tough like that's that's when you find out who your friends are you know it's easy to be someone's friend when they're on top it's easy to be someone's friend when everyone loves them mm-hmm. can you be someone's friend when when they fuck up Right. When they need you to be a friend, 
Mm. You know, and I don't mean need you to be a friend by telling them that they're okay, that they didn't fuck up. Like, it's all good. Do whatever you want. Can you look them in the eye and be like, hey, man, you know why you're down there? Because you did wrong. Mm -hmm. And here's how we fix it. And you need to you need to own that. Right. You know, and I and I just I that's why I get frustrated with sometimes this town and this business because we just write each other off so quick. Right. And you ask me where I come from. I come from a different set of values that I think you share. You know, it's, I come from a, a two parents who grinded for everything that they had. And I feel mm -hmm. like that put a chip on my shoulder because I was the first person to grow up, not with a trust fund, but with means. Mm -hmm. I knew when I went home, everything was provided for. Right. You know, and I wanted to prove that I could earn it on my own. Right. But I also know what I come from. I know that my grandmother worked in a sweatshop when my dad grew up. I know that my grandmother was in Auschwitz, my grandfather was in Dachau, that my dad, you know, had to grind it out in Queens and my mom grinded out with, you know, a single mom because her dad died when she was 11, mm -hmm. you know, and I've had so many blessings in my life. It'd be crazy to be someone who just thinks I deserve them. All right. You know, so. Or give anything less than 100%, right? Yeah. Because like, you know, a lot of things. Too that, many sacrifices were made for me Too many sacrifices that were made. Like a lot of things that go on with me and a lot of reasons why I get so keyed up is because I had like old black people like, you know, talk to me when I was a kid. Like they were like I my my great grandfather, God rest his soul, my grandfather, my grandmother, God rest their souls, that would you know, it's it's in South Louisiana, it's hard it's a hard life if you black in the forties and the fifties. You know what I'm saying? It's a hard life. And they would tell me, yo, I'm 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 they're they're happy to see me thriving and enjoying freedom. You know what I mean? This is the eighties, but still it's much better than what they had it, right? Mm -hmm. But they also want me to know, yo, just to let you know I could have never done this. Like this wasn't a thing for me. Like you, you over there. Like my my grandmother would see me playing with some of my friends, and they were, you know, there were some white kids, and she would just be like, "It, <laughs> it still blows my mind to see this. It still blows." You know, it's funny on a, on a very different scale. Mm -hmm. My grandmother used to get shocked that I would be open about being Jewish. Really? She just couldn't. She was like, "Be quiet." That you didn't want to hide it. She was like, "You should be quiet. It's dangerous." She used to tell me that. Damn. And I'd be like, no, I'm just, a, I am who I am. Like, right. you made me. Like, I'm not, you know, and I also understood that was her victim mentality of what she went through. Mm -hmm. And I, and I wanted to break that cycle. Right. And by the way, just to reverse a little bit, even now, I get nervous when I talk about a Kanye or a Justin in public wow. without them being here. Because I feel like I'm interpreting their story, but it's still their story. And I'm sure. trying to show them respect. So you're asking me these questions and I'm trying to like mm -hmm. tell the truth, but also show them respect because I never want them thinking I'm trying to take advantage of a situation or mm -hmm. explaining them in a way they wouldn't appreciate. All right. You know, um, it's a delicate dance. It's a delicate dance, but it's always I can always look them in the eye and say, I did it from a place of respect, mm. you know, and but I'm also not going to change like I like I got criticism um, because I put up a Instagram of Drake the day after Kanye's album came out when I was with Kanye in Wyoming when he asked me to come back and help him put, put out the Instagram album. of Drake. Yeah, because I said that's my brother and I love him and everything else. Cause Drake the, is your brother. No, like that, like he's my really close friend. Like we Drake is? Yeah. Now that's interesting. No, but, but hear me out. I'm not going to go into it too much because <laughs> right. I have no interest. Right. But my point was to be like, there's drama over there that day. Mm -hmm. That isn't my drama. I'm going to love you. I'm going to love you. And that's what it is. And I'm fine with being public oh, about it. That's so hard to do. And by the way, by the way, you know how many people on both sides were like, yo, what the fuck? Yo, OVO. Yo, good music. Yo, it's yeah. so hard to but, do. But at the end of the day, I'm going to look at both of them and be like, 
whether I agree, like there are things I didn't like. Mm -hmm. And I was really clear to one side right. what I didn't like. Right. <clears throat> I didn't I didn't like hearing somebody say certain things about my friends. Right. I didn't like hearing someone talk about my friends in a certain way. And I made that very clear and I wasn't going to associate Just with to that. Just to be clear, you're talking about you didn't I'm like. I'm not going to talk about <laughs> <laughs> but what, I, what I'm what I'm going to say is when I put that up, right. that was me publicly saying, I'm not going to pretend like I don't I don't have love for this person, right. and I'm not going to be loyal to this person, even though I'm standing over here today. Mm -hmm. And I think as that, a friend, that's always the most difficult position to be in. One hundred percent. But by the way, you know what I learned from? It what? was my parents. We had a, a family friend who went through a horrible divorce when I was a kid, mm -hmm. and everybody was choosing sides. You always divorce. have to choose up in a divorce. No, not my parents. Your parents didn't choose up. My my parents chose the kids. They said, we're going to be friends with both of you. If you have a problem with that, too bad because you got kids and we need to choose those kids because they need some stability. Mm. They need to know that we're not choosing the mom or the dad. Mm. We choose them because you put these kids in our life and we love you guys. And if you guys are going to be assholes to each other, that's fine. But we're not choosing between the two of you. We love you both. And for, for your kids, we're going to show we love you both. Mm. And that stuck with me the rest of my life that, <clears throat> you know, when people say like, yo, you ride with me. Now, if somebody punches my friend in the face and I don't know the person punching him in the face, I'm going to be the first one to throw the next punch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if two of my friends get into a fight... You got to break it up and try to piece it up. 100%. I'm not interested in choosing sides. You think Ye and Dre are ever, Drake are ever going to get over I'm not this? commenting on this. That's between them and now I'm going to stop the rest of it. <laughs> Not bringing me into I, this. I was, just, I, I was just listen. I was just asking if they're ever going to be able to get over it because it seems like it seems kind of petty between two giants. But we'll see. You know, these rap beefs. Here's the thing about rap beefs. I'll say this right now: in the contemporary statuses, if Nas and Jay could get over what they were going through, then anybody can. And the reason why I say this, except for Fifty and Ja, take it to the bank to the death, never be friends. Fifty and Ja will be shooting at each other from the fucking old folks home. It'll never happen. <laughs> like, it, 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 that's the only one. It, like, I, when I saw Jay-Z and Nas on the stage together, I was like, damn, these niggas spent two or three years going at, going at each other on every record. Yo, you think 50 and Jai ever piece this up? Me? Yeah. No. Hell no. No. It's See, that was, it, it, it never happened. Yeah. Um, you not even J-Lo can't even bring them together? Not even J-Lo can't even bring them together. <laughs> <laughs> uh, J-Lo. Uh, so you played basketball and you grew up with Jason Jay Williams, um, who to me would have been at least a borderline NBA Hall of Famer if not for the, uh, the injury. He was a, he was a beast. Um, you played basketball against him before, I'm, I'm sure. Yep. You ever bust his ass? Yes. Yeah. This was the question I wanted to ask the entire <laughs> fucking podcast. Yeah. Like, this was the, the like, so, <clears throat> yeah. so you've bust Jay Williams' ass yes, before. Yes, and he will admit it. Will he now? Yeah. So, explain to Like, me. I could FaceTime him right now and tell the story with him listening, and he will not deny it. I want you to tell the story right now, and we're going to let him learn about it later. The very first time Jay and I played against each other, mm -hmm. I busted his ass the first play. And that is the only time since I've ever busted his ass. Descri describe the move. I was late. Mm -hmm. So my coach subbed me in. It was a team camp. It wasn't By the way, even you know a how you know this story is true? Mm -hmm. Because the one time that you bust the NCAA player of the year, two-time player of the year, you'll never fucking forget it. You should see the okay, gleam in Scooter's eyes 100%. Right and I want to be clear on something. If it wasn't for me and Jay's friendship and me reminding of him of this every single time we meet someone new... <laughs> He would never have remembered this happening, right? Because this was not a pivotal moment in his career, right? But it was, but it was the highlight of mine. <laughs> um, I was late to a team camp at Fordham University, mm -hmm. and that day we were playing um, against Jay, and 
Jay was the number one ranked player in the country. And I got there late, so my coach put me in. And I, you know, you're late, you're not warmed up, and you come into the game. And mm-hmm. I was kind of just dribbling up the ball, but I was dribbling it high because I was kind of just stretching my arms, kind of mm-hmm. going. And I see Jay's face, and he thinks in that moment that I dribble the ball like that. Right. He's like, "Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come, I'm gonna pick this him. dude. I'm gonna yeah, pick him. Yeah, it's, I got it's a wrap. Him. cookies." So I, I was always a three point shooter. So mm-hmm. I came down the court. Sure, you were a scooter. Um, God, you talk a lot for someone who's going to get jade up later. Sure, 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 uh, sure you are, Scooter. Um, and uh, I hit Jay with an in and out cross into, into a back step cross. Oh! So if anyone understands basketball, bang, in and out, bang, back step. Bang. So I basically, he bit on the first move, and then instead of crossing over and trying to go the hole where I knew he was fast enough to catch me, I pulled the ball back. Mm-hmm. So I created distance between me and Jay, and he bit so hard, he was on the other side, and everybody goes, oh, and I winked at him. No, you're lying. No, he'll tell the truth. He'll tell the truth. Scooter putting sauce on it. No, no, I'm not. (laughs) I was always a cocky kid. Scooter putting sauce on it, man. I did, and I winked at him, and I shot a three, and it went straight through. Wow. And the place went crazy. Mm -hmm. And Jay started dribbling up the floor, and he said, like, something like, you're fucked or you're like bad mistake <laughs> like this and in my entire basketball short-lived career mm-hmm. i have never asked my coach to take me out yeah, of a game because he worked your ass after that <laughs> and yeah, that was the only game that i said either let's go to a zone or take me out <laughs> and, my, and my coach and my coach is like we're here for a team camp like we're right. playing a man to man we're not going to we're not going to a fucking goes, two three dog, this isn't about camp. winning this is about learning you know, we're, and and in basketball, so my dad was a coach. Mm-hmm. So um, in basketball, one of the things they teach you on defense is if somebody drives baseline, you beat them to the baseline, and to make sure they don't get past you, you put your foot on that baseline. Sure, like that's fundamental defense. Mm-hmm. What they don't teach you is some people are athletic enough to spin move off of you and dunk the ball two hands. Yes, that happens. So, so that happened to They're me with Jay. Black guys. Um, <laughs> that just isn't true. Um, <laughs> And but Jay did that to right. me. And also the thing about Jay, he was built like a linebacker. In he high was school. fucking strong. He was built like a linebacker. Yeah. And he would just like even if you beat him to the position, he would just run Bully right you. through yeah. you. Yeah. And I swear, he literally he put it on me so bad after that play mm-hmm. that I I think I'm 37 years old and I still think I'm emotionally scarred. <laughs> um, like I don't even think I don't think I ever made an effort on defense ever again after that. Right. For the idea of like. Why put myself in that position ever again? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, we come to the end. I, I, w- I do want to get into a couple more things with you, though, because there's one specific thing that I wanted to talk to you about on this podcast. The reason why I actually um, got you on here was to have a little bit of discussion about men's place in repairing society uh, for women. Right. We've talked about this extensively on the Red Pill, and you had some really uh, – um, sort of um, eloquent words on that. And I saw that and I wanted to kind of get your opinions on that and just talk uh, talk it out a little bit because you've, you're from the entertainment industry. Before I do that, I must bring, I have to bring this up. Do you have any problem with the, the pastor's behavior at the Aretha Franklin funeral with Ariana Grande? Did you, did you see anything wrong with that? Because people are... People I mean, are, I, I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that if the pastor apologized, it means that he felt like there was something wrong with his behavior. Right. And if he apologized and Ariana accepts his apology, then I think, you know, I accept the apology. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I saw, 
whether it was on purpose or not, I'll never know. But I know that immediately he stepped up and apologized. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that I support her. And I also don't think, I don't think he needed to, I mean, you know, give her a hug, put your hand on her back. (laughs) Right, right. It it does, you don't need to, I just don't think he needed to be grabbing her at all, period. Whether, whether Whether he touched, you know, any, it, whether he touched a part of her body or not, it doesn't matter. He didn't even be grabbing her. Right. You know, she didn't say, hey, come grab me. So, um, but I appreciated the apology and that's yeah. my thought on it. So how do we be, uh, as men, um, because not, not even specific to that situation. I just think as men, sometimes we, we assume, we assume that we're invited. <laughs> mm. and, and, you know, we're not always invited. And yeah, <laughs> definitely not. How do I mean, you guys are laughing? But yeah, that's true. Like we're not always invited. We're not invited. We also need to listen more. Mm-hmm. Like it's. I, I just think like. You know. It, you know, even in politics, I see it like. Men, the more the louder we talk, the more we think people listen, and we, we as men just need to start listening more. Like I, I think I could try to offer the best advice I can, but the best advice I can offer for this issue. Is instead of us trying to assume or talk out what we think we should do, we should just go to a woman and say, hey, I need to educate myself, so I'm going to shut up for the next hour and just listen to you. Hmm. How do we change our behavior? Um, exemplify behavior that young men can look up to. Hmm. I mean, I think that when I came into the music industry and just the entertainment industry as a whole, you think of an entertainment executive and you think fast women, fast cars, you know, that that lifestyle that we perpetuate out there. And... I started to meet people and realize they're amazing husbands and fathers, you know. Wow, don't see that as much though. But they didn't put it out publicly. Put it out publicly, yeah. You know, they felt like, oh, it's my family, I'm guarding it, everything else. And I saw Jeffrey Katzenberg as this, I saw Lucy and Grange as this, I saw Richard Grange. Richard Branson, who we look at as like some kind of sex symbol, but the truth is he's been married faithfully to the same woman for years and has raised two adult children, hmm. you know, and they adore him, you know, and... But I didn't know that. I knew him as the guy with the naked girl on his kiteboard. This girl on his kiteboard, on private island, yeah. all of that stuff like that, looking and, like a villain in a James Bond movie. And and the funny thing was, I realized I was like, how can we expect young men to change if we're telling them this is a picture of success? Mm-hmm. You know, we're telling them right from wrong, but then we're telling them this is a picture of success. We're telling them, you know, I said this the other day uh, on something. That the the hey uh, money doesn't matter, but by the way, this is the eligible bachelor list, and the top ten we base on net worth. All all rich, you know. And I think if we want to change young men's behavior, we have to start with ourselves and how we want to portray our image and success. Mm -hmm. So that's when I had to talk with my wife, and I said, I want to put you and the kids as a part of the image I put down on social media. I want to talk about you guys in interviews. I want people to know that being a good father and a good husband is my priority. And that's what I find to be success so that the next kid who comes in sees that and wants to be that, not the guy in the Ferrari with the young chick, Mm. you know, that he can use as a trophy, you know. And I think what I'm starting to see is I meet young men who are coming up to me. They're saying, hey, I see what you have. I want that. You know, I want I want the kids. I want the wife. I want. And by the way, not any wife. My wife is tough as hell. Nah, she's actually a pretty impressive lady. Yeah, my wife's the founder of F Cancer. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, fuck cancer. Yeah. And, you know, she's she's built multiple businesses. Like, she's much more impressive than me, in she my opinion. She don't even need you, Scooter. No, she doesn't. And, no, that's the truth. Out of here. That's the truth. <laughs> but I think, like, I want... 
how can you blame young men who are trying to figure it out for their behavior if you aren't showing them anything different? Mm. You know, it's the same idea as rich dad, poor dad. And if anyone hasn't read the book, they should. And it mm -hmm. talks about, you know, if you give examples to a kid in a certain neighborhood, he's going to want to live up to that example. You know, and I think that's what we need to start. One, we need to listen to women. That's mm -hmm. the first place we start. Right. And then secondly, start giving an image to young men that's worth living up to. Right. All right, listen, y'all give it up for Scooter Braun. You know, we're going to have Scooter Braun back. Listen, here's the thing. I'm going to bust Scooter's ass in basketball pretty soon. <laughs> and when I do it. Do you have like a Boris DL game? Like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. You got that backup mid-level. No, I mean, I, I can do, I can do. Scooter. By the way, I love Boris DL, by the way. <laughs> he is, he is, but you know, you know a very versatile that? player. You know why he said that? He said that because I have a Boris DL body. Exactly. And so he kind of put me in there. Yeah, that's pretty much why I said it. But, he, but here's the deal, though. I can give, I can give you buckets kind of anywhere you need me to give you buckets on the court. You know what I mean? So just, I'm just putting that out there. And kind of a small guy so it's gonna be a physical game you know what I'm saying yeah so yeah. you ready for this I mean you remember what I was talking about earlier mm -hmm. about like perpetuating an image right when I do that I try to strive to like be great right so when I like when I meet young kids, I speak to them like children. So when we get on the court, what is he about to I'm say? gonna play you like a child. <laughs> um, because you know it's 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 one of those things. It's like this is foolishness, right? And I'm not gonna get angry or like get excited. I'm just gonna be like foolishness, okay, right? Good. I got you. Give it up for school to Brian. Yeah. Wait, wait, I want to. I gotta say something before we're done. Before I gotta we go. say we're done. I want to tell you why I did this. Why you did this podcast? I do. I want to give you some credit. Sure. Um, so, uh, white guys, you've been having to clap the whole time. When I'm done, the one black guy, he can clap. Um, <laughs> um, um, no, the real reason I did this is um, how much respect I have for you. Oh, and, and you know, I get asked to do a bunch of different podcasts and different stuff, and many times with people I know. And, mm. you know, we have a publicity firm that works for us, and they're always telling me, no, you're doing, they're doing mm. too much. Like, And I think the way you've chosen to handle yourself um is i never it's funny because we it's hard for us to be critical of ourselves mm -hmm. and we're always hard on ourselves and when you called me that day uh because of what happened with you and kanye and you said you know i don't like the idea that people might think i did that to further my career i think that was you being critical of yourself or maybe hearing like three percent of the actual population talking about it mm -hmm. i think the way i saw it i think most people saw that is someone who was educated, who was concerned, who was coming from a real place and is never afraid to speak their truth. Mm -hmm. And I think that in our business, to be someone who's never afraid to speak their truth is not always easy um, because it puts our job on the line, it puts our, you know, our livelihood on the line. And I, I've found you to be in every instance and in every conversation we've had and every opportunity you've had to just sit back and say nothing, you've always spoken your truth. And I really, really admire that and I think that Although you have probably no game on the court, I do think that I do I do think that you this is just the beginning for you on where you're headed in your career and your opportunity to make a change and live up to what that you know your grandparents told you the opportunities that you have because I just think you're a special guy and that's why I wanted to do it. Oh man, I appreciate that. Now so one, you can clap. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we out.